Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. On Headstrong, we are very pleased and proud to be partnered with the CBD brand, The Good Level. Now, I've been taking CBD for about 18 months to maintain my mental well-being, but it's been very difficult to find a brand that I can trust because there's so many faceless foreign brands out there and you're not sure what you're buying or how it's sourced. Luckily, I found two guys, Joe and Johnny, who have created this wonderful brand called The Good Level. What's so great about these guys is that they support British farming. Many brands import their CBD from America, but The Good Level say they don't rely on the methods by farmers that they've never met, nor the farms that they've never seen. They have a really close relationship with their farmers who are in Somerset, meaning they know how their product is produced from start to finish. They're the first CBD company I found who put a face on the brand and they're transparent with the whole process of how they create their products. And they've even got their own podcast where they look at the latest research on CBD. To check them out, go to their Instagram at the.good.level and drop them a message if you want to find out more about CBD. And for 15% off their products, use Headstrong15 on their website for checkout. very good morning or good evening or good afternoon to you and thank you for tuning in to Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I host this show. Now if this is your first time tuning in because you are a fan of my guest this week, Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with people in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers and have a really engaging and interesting conversation with them to understand what the word headstrong means to them. On this week's episode of Headstrong, I am joined by a wonderful actor called Alistair Petrie. Now, I'd never met Alistair before, but we shared a couple of mutual friends, and I really wanted to get him onto the show 
because not only has he had a really, really interesting acting career, but he's also a wonderful activist and supports some wonderful charities, including one called Born, which is very, very close to his heart, and one that which Alistair will go into tremendous detail. This episode is really fantastic. I really enjoyed it, and I know that you will too. It is quite hard hitting towards the end, so by all means, lock in for an emotional roller coaster, and I really hope that you enjoy it. Alistair, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. Big, big pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm kicking off every episode in the same way uh, with a new initiative called Check In With You. Mm-hmm. And I want to check in with you and see how you're doing today, how you're feeling and your emotions at this current time. Um, what a lovely way to open. Um, I'd say pretty good, really, um, all things considered. We're in a very interesting point in our family life where my uh, one of my, I've got three boys and twin sons are the younger two and uh, one of them has departed the house not 10 minutes ago to go and do his final um a-level exam so um so it's it's a kind of a it's a sort of a mad slightly magical time it's a different time because they are my eldest is at university and and so we're moving into a, a kind of a fascinating new phase um of uh, of our lives really as a family uh, but a good one so i'm i'm sort of buoyant and Actually, I'm sort of looking outward because I'm very excited for them and, and what, you know, their, their sort of immediate future future holds, really. That's a really important transitional phase. Is university on the cards? Yeah, they have plans. Um, it looks like we're going to be in a family business. My eldest son is doing um, uh, animation and visual effects at university. Wow. And uh, the two younger ones, uh, one of them is going to study TV production um and has a place to do that and the other one has um fessed up about six weeks ago which i kind of already knew but he wants to become an actor so um i've got one that can do all the fx one that can give me work and the other one that can stand alongside me <laughs> well more <laughs> more reason great. to have started your production company there you go there you Fantastic. go exactly. i mean you are an incredibly busy man honestly i was when i was prepping for this episode i was looking through your 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 career and you've got Hundreds of credits. It's fantastic. You're a highly sought-after actor. You know, been <laughs> in the business for a number of years. Um, yeah, but that's true. I'm interested to talk to you about your your upbringing and your childhood, if we may, and particularly touching on the fact. I believe your father was a military man. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, go. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm interested to know um, then where kind of drama fitted in to this because you spent a lot of time all over the world growing up following your father around uh, to a number of places so i'm interested to know what that was like it's a really it's it's very interesting and i thought about it quite a lot um um recently for a variety of reasons but yeah he was um my father was um uh in the military and he 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 always wanted to be a pilot that was um but had no access to it because he was from a um a Scottish family. His father died when he was pretty young. Um, his father was a um, an engineer, and he, I think, he sort of. I'm not sure that he struggled with home life, but it wasn't his natural habitat. My grandfather, who I never met, and so he would uh, he would go where he could work, um, and so he was killed. We don't really quite know why, but or how rather. Um, in in we think a car accident in South Africa. My father was quite young. Um, and so he was brought up with um, his brother and his sister in uh, a tiny flat in Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, but due to his um, sporting prowess, and I think he was pretty smart, my dad, he got into the um, the grammar school in Aberdeen. Um, he was a very, very good rugby player. And 
there was the, the sort of the prospects of breaking outside of Aberdeen were pretty slim, really. In fact, I think he got a place at university as well, but um, which would have been the first by a long shot in our family um, or his family at the time to go anywhere near sort of a higher education. But he he knew what he wanted to do. And so um, the church had a whip round to get the money together for him to get the train to head south to uh, to to interview to join the Air Force. Um, and that that sort of detail, which we only found out relatively recently, was was kind of extraordinary to hear, really. And so and he got into the Air Force, um, which was remarkable, really. And I think he was very tenacious about that, but it was something he always wanted to do. So when I kind of sort of announced grandly that I wanted to be an actor, I think he had no points of reference at all. There was nothing in our family that indicated towards that at all. But I think what he recognised was someone like himself who knew what they wanted to do. So I think I was expecting a huge amount of pushback because he didn't understand it. And uh, while he kind of liked watching the telly, um, I think he was probably a little suspicious of those people involved in it <laughs> um, for a variety of reasons. So, so, and if you pair that up with, you know, the overarching question, why I became an actor, it's something I've been kind of examining really. Um, due to the nature of my upbringing, the na- notion of moving every three years, needing to slot in, wanting to be a part of something. So there's a sort of a fairly deep-seated philosophical thought process about it, um, which which intrigues me to this day, and I certainly don't really have the answers to it. But um, I think my I mean, mother was in... Go ahead, Louis, sorry. It's certainly not a black and white answer, and I'll agree, I'd agree mm. with you in that regard for sure. I'm interested to know you know, moving every three years and trying kind of having your home moving all the time and starting new schools, making new friends all the time. Was that a challenge for you then? And finding kind of finding a place to to feel at home because knowing that there was a finite amount of time in these locations, you knew that you were going to be moving on eventually. So was that was that difficult? I think I think it, it it's reflected back very much now when I when my when when my wife and I started our family, I was um I was desperate and very keen to put down roots for my children. So it sort of reflected in my adult life. It's like, you know, when you grow up, the the situations you find yourself in is normal because it's the only normality that you know. Um, But when it becomes sort of your turn to think about these things and figure them out for for your own children, that was definitely what I wanted to do. I wanted to to create um, a solid base and as fast as I could um, for uh, for when when our, our, our children arrived, um, so but at the time, yeah, I think you you have to adapt. You have to. I mean, it's probably one of the old cliches in the world about you know parts of aspects of why actors become actors. I think definitely it was a part of the uh, the need, the desire, and I guess the ability to be who you needed to be. Um, in any given set of circumstances. Um, and I think that translates rather obviously into into sort of a professional career in many ways. So I didn't find it difficult because there was a sort of, a, I guess there was a childlike adventure attached to it. And I was really lucky, my dad, because he was a pilot, he was off in some quite exotic locations. So the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. So I spent six, seven, eight, nine, ten, seven to 10, seven to 11 maybe um, in, in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, which of course is when you're that age, is is sunshine and baseball. Um, you know, obviously, there are a lot of Americans there. So, um, and some European stuff, and also in Lagos in Nigeria too. So, 
I guess there's a privilege attached to that. Um, and you live a slightly gilded atmosphere, obviously. Um, so I'd, I'd say sort of lucky to see those things um, rather than difficult, I think. It's a very unique perspective that you have there, actually, seeing it as kind of uh, you have a unique gratitude towards what you experienced, particularly because I imagine it's all you ever knew. So it'd be difficult to compare it to what maybe I deem as normal because yours was normal to you. That's exactly right. Um, And I I look back on it um, with with a lot of affection, actually, but I don't ever take it for granted. Um, For for not so much the worldview that it it i mean it would have contributed to 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 my worldview but um you did live a sort of a privileged existence but partly for security reasons more than anything else but um it 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 did allow me glimpses into things which i'm sort of examining today in in sort of stories that that um that one's looking at sort of trying to tell certainly connected to the middle east um and uh and also now i've got family in africa as well um that sort of extraordinary and brilliant continent so yeah it's um it was it was my normal but i i reflect back on it with with a huge sense of um uh yeah i think it was a very lucky way i was lucky to see what i to see what i saw in a way as 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 a child really when you spoke to your your parents, when you said you wanted to pursue this career in the creative arts and acting, um, how old were you? And was this when you were back in the UK? I was very young. I think I, I mean, I, I'm sort of half fascinated by the notion of false memories, but um, uh, I, the memory that I have is that seeing my mother who did lots of amateur dramatics, which again, when you move a lot, and given that my father had his job and my mother was sort of the, the amazing support network, um, she was great because she threw herself into all sorts of things that were on offer in all of these places that you lived in. And one of them was amateur dramatics. Um, and I remember going to see a production that she was in, um, sort of Christmas time thing. And I think I was about six sitting in a theatre and probably just old enough to sort of keep quiet with a bag of sweets for the duration of the production for the first time. But I remember she said a line and, and then everyone laughed. And I do remember sort of literally sort of leaning forward and looking around and thinking, what this is, what is this? And I do remember it very, very well. Um, and what that gave me, I don't truly know, but I think it gave me something about the magic of it and the, um, the power of it. Um, and then, then I just started to do as much as I could, like so many people at school. Um, I sort of, that's where I found my tribe. And I'm, I was always very keen with my kids to explain to them if they were having a tough time at, um, you know, the beginning of the what three or four schools they went to, um, you know, you'll find your tribe. Um, and when you find your tribe, it's it's the greatest thing. And that's what you hope for. You know, I don't care whether you're in first team for football or whatever. That doesn't matter to me. What matters is that you find your tribe, your gang, your community. Um, oh, <laughs> um, you find your tribe, you find your gang, you find your community. And um, and I think that's where I found mine. Um, so a lot of it was at school, a lot at university. Well, when I say university, a very brief time I spent at university. Um I just did as much as I could and school was great at it. Was it a matter of kind of a sense of purpose then as well? You know, you know, when you were moving and you were finding these new locations and despite going to a new school, you knew that if you went into that kind of realm and that area, you'd, you know, you'd have two firm feet in something to feel comfortable and get stuck into. You wouldn't have the need for any anxieties or, or nerves starting at a new school, making new friends because you've got this pursue, you know, pursuing this kind of, adoration for drama i guess 
Yeah, it, immediately and, and generally with drama, um, it was always people were in the room because they really wanted to be there. Mm. Um, and I think that was takes the edge off any sort of potential anxiety. You just know whether it is 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 people who are standing in a room on day one of anything, um, they, they basically want to be there. And that is quite a thing. Um, no one's forced to be there. Um, it's not a lesson in school that you have to attend. So you know that some people don't want to be there. And I think that was really appealing to me um, to be in that environment. So you talked briefly there about university. You had a brief time there, but you did end up going to acting school. Well, first of all, before we go on to it, what was the university course? Uh, <laughs> and where was well, it? I, I was, uh, my father was very keen. Uh, he was a strong-willed man and he was very keen that I go to university. And I think I grew up my, my teenage years. A lot of it was spent, um, like many people, trying to please their old man. And so uh, the suggestion was go to university. And I was given a piece of advice, which um, I wouldn't give to someone else now and I haven't done um which was I was told at school well you can always do the acting thing but why don't you go to university and get a degree to fall back on that's right okay and that seems perfectly logical I don't think it's the right advice for someone that doesn't want a plan b and only has a plan a which was very much my case anyway so I applied for university and I chose my university not because I was massively bright um, and the university course by, um, I was doing two modern languages in English at, um, I was doing Spanish, French and English at A-level. And I went into the little office and they said, so university, have you thought about it? And I went, yeah. And they said, what are you going to study? And I said, I have no idea, but I knew, I thought I could do sort of backdoor drama. I thought, well, maybe that's, and then I need to attach something to drama. So, um, I was okay at French, not great at it, but I was okay. So I opened up the book and, um, I just literally squirreled and just put my <laughs> finger on a course and it just said French and drama on the sort of a languages course. And I went, great, I'll do that. And my sister at the time was at university of London and I'd been up to her college a couple of times and it was a small one in Hampstead. A, it was a nice area. B, it was really small. So I thought, great, I'll apply there because my sister's there and I'm sure it'll be great. So I arrived, uh, I got in and that was fine. Um, I got in and I knew immediately that I wanted to be there for the people. I was consuming people, you know, I mean, it was just phenomenal. Um, and I loved it, but I just hated doing French. Um, so I uh, didn't bother turning up to the first year exams. And um, I got thrown out of university, which is something I'm hugely proud of, because that's quite hard to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the day, But the day I got thrown, I'd also been surreptitiously auditioning for drama school. Um, and uh, the day I got booted out of university was the day I actually got a letter from Lambda saying you've been accepted. Um, and my mother really me. aligned. Wow. Well, it was really weird. It was kind of weird. And what was, there was a great joy in looking at the, the, the tutor I had, who was this very austere, besuited tutor who sort of summoned me into his office and said, I'm afraid I have no option but to send you down. And I remember thinking, Jesus, this isn't Oxford. Send me down. What does that mean? <laughs> you pompous fart. Uh, and so, um, and he, I think he was expecting me to sort of grovel and beg and plead and burst into tears. And I sort of shrugged and went, okay, uh, which took him by surprise. And then that night I went into the university bar and I got the accommodations officer absolutely shit faced, um, and asked him if I could keep my room for the rest of the year because I was having such a good time. And he went, sure, great. Yeah, fine. <laughs> but if I need it back, I'll have to ask for it back. And I went, yeah, no, no problem. Of course you never did. And I spent the rest of the year there. Um, haunting the professor who kept seeing me around campus, not holding any books. And I think he was really, really fucked off. Oh, that's um, brilliant. Yeah, it was, a great, it was a hell of a year. It was a great year. Um, it was a great year. And then I went straight to Lambda after that, yeah. 
Yeah. So talking about that audition process then for Lambda, did you apply for any other drama schools as well? I did. Uh, I did. I applied for Central. Um, I think I applied for Central, RADA and Lambda. And I was sort of doing it on my own. There was no, you know, there was no sort of resource. I was, I was literally on which, which ones had I basically heard of that were the mm. best. Um, and I cannot for the life of me remember what happened at RADA. Um, Can you remember any uh, audition pieces? What you did? <laughs> yeah, it was just terrible. I mean, ridiculously bad. So again, because I had no one that was helping me out, I thought, right, I'm going to show off my vast and uh, and deep wells of talent and skill set. Um, <laughs> and so I chose. I think rather, I think what saved me was was um, I did. Um, I, I got together um, uh, the map of the world, which is a David Hare play, and I sort of spliced together. Um, a speech and I thought well that's no one's going to have heard this so that's quite good and it, it sort of suited me rather well it was um I think Bill Nye played the part originally so that you know and I wasn't a million miles away I mean maybe he played it when he was like 30 and although I was sort of 19 years old I just thought oh, that's fine but then I thought to show off my astonishing versatility age 19 I thought it'd be a really good idea to do Willie Loman from Death of the Salesman <laughs> um Death of a Salesman who is probably at least 70 years old and American. And I thought this would be genius. And of course, it was just a terrible idea. Uh, so I did that. Um, and the Shakespeare, I think I did something from King Lear. But the, wor- I mean, so Lambda, but the worst one was Central, and it became this apocryphal story. And because um, and somebody actually repeated this story back to me many years later in one of those, did, did you hear this story ever? I went, all right, all right. So well, there was a guy who came. Oh, here we go. Came, yeah, there was a guy who came to Central and was doing, um, I forget which, Edgar or Edmund, the one on the heath, basically. You know, you know it's, all, it's all kicking off in the storm and everything else. And I, <laughs> I arrived at Central. And again, in my, in my naivety, um, I thought it would show huge commitment um, if um, five minutes before my turn to go in, audition that um i would leave the waiting room i would go outside into the autumn weather into the garden of central just out the front and i would um remove all my clothes down to my pants i would cover myself in mud then i would come back upstairs i would walk into the audition room and they would look at me and go wow we have something special here um i look back on that now and thinking yeah that was probably not the best thing but i did it with some considerable elan. And then afterwards, I then, of course, had to go and sit in the waiting room in my pants with this pile of clothes on my knee covered in mud. And Central was the only drama school where they told you on the day whether they were going to invite you back for recall. Other ones, you went in and you left and you got a letter or a phone call or whatever. So I sat there looking very smug and happy. And I remember the person came and said, thank you all very much for coming. We'd like to ask the following five people to come back. And I remember just looking around and nodding, going, yeah, it's me and four others. And of course, my name wasn't read out. And I was astounded. I thought they were passing up on the opportunity of a lifetime. Anyway, cut to literally three. I mean, it was like years later. Somewhat, it was, it, it, this story had whipped around Central the next day about this absolute idiot who turned up. And of course, no one thought it showed commitment. <laughs> People just thought I was an utter twat. And they were right. 
Anyway, so Central I did not get into, but Lambda, um, I think they, uh, I think they sort of by part the Willie Loman um, thing, and uh, I managed to kind of sneak in there, which was uh, so. Yeah, that's how I ended up at Lambda. That is one not, hell of a story. And not Central. <laughs> and not God, Central. It still makes me wince. Oof. Do you know what? I've got a couple of friends at Central. I wonder if the story's still going around. Ask them. The guy that turned up and honestly covered himself in mud and did uh, Edmund or Edgar. <laughs> We're talking circa a long time ago. Circa, oh my God, it is a long time ago. 80, would have been 80, yeah, but 88, 89. Oh, I'm going to have to ask. That is absolutely quality. I guarantee someone will go, I've heard that story. I mean, I'm sure there are a thousand awful auditionee stories, but, but mine was, um, yeah, it wasn't good. I mean, something I was about to ask you is about, you know, the pre, pre-nerve audition jitters, but clearly there was no such thing as nerves for you, just pure cur- courage. And I, kind of, I don't know, yeah. or, is it, or is it ignorance? I don't know. <laughs> I think it's definitely not courage. I think it's total and utter ignorance. I mean, I, yeah, if, if, and I have counselled um, the odd young actor, um, you know, and just sort of said, just don't, don't do that. <laughs> you know, and now we live in the world of sort of self-tapes. And, and my nephew actually has just, uh, um, is on the verge of graduating from, from Lambda. And of course, they are so well-trained now um, in terms of all of that, you know, world of of, of auditioning um, and self-tapes and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it's like, dude, play, playing background. <laughs> playing background. For sure. Um, don't cover yourself in mud because everyone will just laugh at you. So uh, <laughs> yeah, like, so Lambda, Lambda's renowned for being a, a fantastic drama school, obviously, and quite classical in terms of its training as well, I mm. suppose. But when mm. did it become a reality for you at drama school? Were you signed by an agent to, for it to become a living for you? I mean, did you already have that mentality when you joined, knowing this is going to be a profession, or was there a flick of a switch at some point? No, I think um, I think I, I didn't really see beyond the end of my nose. I don't think any of us did, really. I think we were excited about... Um, uh, just 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 being a part of 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 it and it was and it was different then i think in the sense that um you know nowadays if you leave drama school um and i'm not saying this is definitive it's not at all but you know because of the nature of the shift pandemic notwithstanding to sort of the television platforms that exist in the world um and all the rest of it there was no there was not a massive film industry going on um television was being made but we didn't have streaming you know there was bbc one i you know so it was it was very different and so the notion was <clears throat> you were just desperate and excited to start working in the theatre. That was that was the route. And then picking up some telly along the way. Um, <clears throat> and that was our world. Film was, I had no desire actually to work in film. It wasn't film, wasn't, um, wasn't on my horizon. We didn't seem to be making very many films um, out of the UK. So, uh, and television was, was you know, fair, well, small, but relatively small. So theatre was where, you know, aspirations lay. That's, that's, that's where we kind of looked and maybe to pick up a little bit of telly here and there just to um, earn a bit more money than, than got paid in theatre. But it was never about, um, there was no sort of grand plan. It was just being a part of it. And I loved, um, I loved that notion of it. And you did do a lot of theatre, didn't you? In fact, I think, am I right in saying one of your contemporaries is Mr. Fines? Uh, well, I, I work, with, I work with Rafe, um, and Joe actually. Um, but, um, uh, we weren't contemporaries of drama school. No, I mean, you, you've worked with him though. You, you, you've shared. Oh, Rafe. Yeah. Yes, I have. Yeah, absolutely. I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did a epic, epic, very epic Ibsen, um, uh, together in, uh, the Haymarket, which was, uh, and the RSC actually, which was uh, great. So yeah. And I worked with Joe as well on film and, uh, yeah, the great Fines brothers. 
Mm. I, absolutely. Now, I, I, um, you spent, as you say there, a lot of time at the RSC. You, you spent, I think, a couple of years there as well. And you've got a yeah, whole, it was. whole list of credits to your name now. And now I'm going to ask you the most horrendous, horrible question that, as an actor, I shouldn't ask you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Go for it. What is your favourite thing that you have done, but not to have done? Because I, I always say that every cast and everything is always fantastic and a great experience. Mm. But what's mm. your favourite if you had to watch it back? What's the one that you've enjoyed the most from the content? On stage? Or, or, and or screen, any credit? Oh, blimey. That's um, a very difficult question. But. <laughs> no, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I, have an ins- I mean, my instinctive reaction um, for a variety of reasons was, was not only the... Um, uh, the experience and the production, but also, well, yeah, the experience of doing it um, and the experience of performing it on, on you know, the biggest stage, which was His Dark Materials. Mm. But which that, was, a poster behind you, in fact. Oh, God, that's, yeah, this isn't, this isn't like my living room, by the way. That would be so narcissistic. I was this about to say, little... I love the room, though. It's great. <laughs> no, it's basically, it's, I can close the door and it's, it's my space. And I, I don't sit here in some wistful reflection um, at all. It's just got some nice reminders of some really nice times. So, yeah, there is actually a picture of it behind me. But, yeah, this is, this is, not, my, this is not my living room. Um, I laughingly call it my office. Um, but I'd say His Dark Materials was pretty special because for a whole variety of reasons, not only the company, um, but also it was, on, it was the first time I'd been to the, would work to the National Theatre, which, um, you know, all actors, as you know, sort of walk past that massive building. And, and if they haven't been there before, go one day. It would be amazing. Um, and I'd spent a good, I don't know, however long it was, 10 years sort of walking past that building going one day, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, and to do a production like that as for starters was extraordinary, not least because um, I remember we were allowed to invite sort of family, I think, to our dress rehearsal of this two-parter. And my nephew came and nieces and stuff. Anyway, there was a, probably a gang. There was probably an audience of about 80 with sort of, sort of family and stuff dotted around. In fact, probably in the upper, in the, in the circle because all the tech stuff was still going on. And uh, um, I remember my nephew was there and at the time. He was probably, oh God, about six or seven. Um, and it spoke to him in you know, just volumes, the story did. And then I think at the time a grandparent came as well and it spoke to them. And that was just, you know, how often does that happen when it's not a panto? Very, very rarely. Um, so knowing that you were delivering a story to an age range that was right across the spectrum and it's speaking to those audiences were, were was really extraordinary. Um, and that, that I think meant a lot. Also, I was playing a, playing, um, you know a polar bear (laughs) yeah that doesn't happen very often and so the nature of the storytelling and the epic nature of the storytelling um uh on on the biggest stage um was magical and it's one of those things you reflect back on because i think what can happen is with a lot of jobs that some of the jobs that you do are just brilliant at the time and then life moves on and that's totally fine Whereas that, there's a sort of bond, really, that, um, I mean, there's people that I'm still, that, that, that we're sort of bonded by it and uh, go have become, you know, close friends. David Harewood, um, um, you know, was in it. And it, it, you just, there's, a, there's an invisible link between all of you, which exists to this day. And that means there's some kind of alchemy, which is, is rather magical, really. Um, but I'm lucky because I've worked with some, fantastic companies both on stage and and on screen um and 
Yeah, I love those. I love those invisible links. Um, I, I, I really do. And I think, as you will know, the community of this industry it can feel from the outside looking in so vast and complex. And actually, I could, I'd argue that it is relatively small or feels relatively small, I should say, um, on occasion. I know sometimes it can feel relatively vast and ergo rather lonely, but equally, um, I love the intimacy of it. Um, the community that's just huge in my life absolutely now transitioning over from stage to screen i, I there mm. was a, there's a particular credit that i want to talk to you about not no least because it's my favorite uh tv show and gutted that there was only one series which is the night manager oh and yeah of, of course it was only ever written to be pretty much one series because it was from a book right Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, there's some great, great um, actors in that. Hugh Laurie, Tom mm. Hiddleston. And mm. that was quite an experience, I imagine, kind of jet setting everywhere as well, almost. <laughs> it's funny because, um, it, 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 yeah, it was. I mean, that that show and and job absolutely falls into the category that I was just talking about. You mm. know, there is a sort of an invisible bond because you share something pretty remarkable. Um and it, it was an extraordinary experience. It began with a, a you know a very lovely phone call um, from my agent through my agent from Gina Jay's office saying uh, with an offer to be in the show, and uh, I read it. And um, the part was sort of okay, uh, and I was like, mm, uh, yeah, it's 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 really well written and it's for Carrie, and that's great. But I had to sort of break it down into its constituent parts. And one of those parts I had to consider was, as, as an actor, what's it going to be like to work on for four months? And so I was slightly umming and ahhing. Um, and then I reread it and <laughs> with the view of, wait a minute, all these people are basically billionaires. Um, so <laughs> this, could be, <laughs> this could be quite good fun. Um, <laughs> and my, con- my concern was is that I would basically spend four months um, standing just left of few lorries slightly out of focus. Um, and whether that would be a particularly um, tiresome working experience. And then I reread it. And then I very rapidly said to myself, shut the fuck up. Look at the people who are working on this. Look who, who David Farr, who adapted it. Look who's directing it. Look where it's coming from, as in the source material, the carré. Um, Hugh, Tom, Olivia. And you just go, right, Just maybe just shut the fuck up and um, maybe just jump. And so I did indeed shut the fuck up and jump. And it became... A remarkable for, for a variety of reasons. One, the first one was that the alchemy, this thing I talked earlier about alchemy, you can have all the right ingredients in place and you can just line them all up and the alchemy can just not come together. It, you can, it can just not work. And I had that with the stage experience, which, which you know, it was all lined up and it just didn't click. This did. Um, and not only that, the working experience was great because it was very much an ensemble when you've got sort of three, four, I mean, I haven't even mentioned Tom Hollander, um, and Elizabeth Debicki, when you've got this kind of group of people, um, especially Tom and Hugh primarily leading it with Olivia, really, you, you know, there is two leading characters facing off between Tom and Hugh. It becomes potentially a star driven vehicle and the way it was pieced together was very much as an ensemble. We rehearsed every morning before we turned over. We didn't, the cameras didn't roll usually until, uh, well, certainly until we were fully rehearsed. So we left the hotel, went straight to set. Um, there was no, none of this going to unit base and having some breakfast and sort of lounging around for a bit while everyone else did their important work. <laughs> um, so we went straight to set. And I remember the first day, the driver said, Are we gonna, I'm going to drop you straight at set. And we're all like, what? 
what? <laughs> what? And of course, it was amazing because you rehearsed until you had, 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 had figured out the scene and then you could start shooting. And I think the producers were like, Jesus, we haven't turned over and it's midday, Christ. But we never went an hour over. We never, we never needed to do any pickups. I mean, it was a fantastic way of working, led by the very peerless Susanna Beer, who directed the whole thing. Um, and so it was an ensemble piece. We'd rehearse every scene. And Hugh is extraordinary because he has no desire to um, you know, get his elbows out. Um, his his only uh, and Tom as well. The only motivation is what makes the scene work. How does the scene work at its best? Hugh was more keen to give lines away rather than try and get any more. Um, and and so it was incredibly collaborative. There was everyone ha- had a voice. And on the first day, we suddenly went shit. This is um, this this has the potential to to be really good. And then with the visuals and the discussions and all the other things. Um, we finished shooting in Morocco. We had a party for the Moroccan crew and Susanna played a sort of a three minute reel um, of what we'd shot that they'd spliced together. And I remember one of the sound guys bouncing up and down with a beer in his hand saying, a lovely guy from South Africa, he just said, oh man, I'd work on this for free from now on. I love it, I love it. And we knew that something potentially great was happening. Um, but with, um, I guess, a real sense of humbleness about it, we just thought, you know, let's keep striving. And then it became this thing um, and so I kind of, so just to get back to the original point of me, if I, <laughs> I would be sitting here going, oh, you dickhead. So, you know, look at each project on its own merits. Um, you have to look at it slightly selfishly at some point, but equally just then retreat, look at the whole. And, uh, you know, if you're in a fortunate position to make a decision about something, then, um, yeah, make sure it's informed. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was magical. Now, as actors, as you well know, you don't get to see the half of the stresses and strains of what goes on behind. Um, and I'm sure there are millions because it's really difficult to make something good. Um, and it can be challenging. Um, and I'm sure tons of it was, but we never got to see it. So we just reaped the very happy benefits of it. Um, but it's kind of in there now as sort of part of the TV landscape and, and to be a part of it is, um, is is yeah again an unbelievable privilege that's a phrase i will use a lot in this business but it's true it was it was an unbelievable privilege i mean what a brilliant and unique experience the way that you've just described it in such detail it sounds really unique and what's what's Mm. great is you enjoy everything that you do i can really get that across from what you're telling me oh god yeah i have no doubt as well that um, what the, the next production that we're going to talk about is a whole unique different type of fun in the form of sex education yeah, and and how and how starkly different, but also how very ensemble as well. And actually, you know, I think bringing it's, together, it's, it's where it's where I sort of I think I feel I thrive really. Um, I, I can't be cynical about this business. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's an industry built on rejection. We know that, and I think everybody is. Um, there's there's zero point zero zero one percent of the people that go rejection. I don't know what that is, um, but everyone in this business, um, it is an industry built on rejection, and that is the nature of it. Um, so, and that's not, and that ebbs and flows all of the time. And it's a confidence business, and where you get your confidence from in this business can be from wherever. But it's 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 a all of that. But I think I thrive very much within an ensemble. Um, everybody working towards the same goal. And what's so fabulous about sex education? amongst many things um, is that it has that feel. Nobody has their elbow elbows out. And I'll say this very distinctly, actually, about ASA. Um, um, I, I can't pay ASA higher compliments 
um, than he is the he is he's the best of us. He is the most, and he's you know he's he's the leading man, I guess you could say. Um, and but he his generosity, which is so instinctual, it's not forced at all. I mm. think you know a lot of the other young cast who'd never done anything sort of looked to Asa not to see how to behave, but just to observe his manner and went, Oh, right. That's how you do it. Just isn't just a supreme human being, but, um, it is, I think we all thrive within an ensemble. And, uh, and if someone doesn't, I think then it's not, I think there's other things going on that they need to sort of figure out in life and that's okay. You know, um, but it's, it's the, the ensemble spreads, which I think is pretty unique as well, spreads from not only, um, the cast, but also to, the people that work on it. So our execs from Eleven, um, John Jennings, who produces it, Ben Taylor, who directs it, um, and uh, um, Ron Urari has directed it this year. It, it sort of spreads beyond just sort of cast and then the grown-ups over there, which is amazing. Um, but I do remember my first day. <laughs> I just knew. I just thought, oh, God. Uh, I was. I had a costume fitting, and I spoke to um, Rosa, our costume designer. Well, I was being fitted in the most awful kind of old man tweed that didn't fit and it wasn't supposed to fit and literally people died in this stuff i'm sure that people got buried in my suits and then they dug them up and hung them up at angels and said one day they'll be useful anyway i was, I was wearing these things and i said to rosa i said oh what, what what's the uniform like that the kids are going to be wearing she went oh no they're not in uniform i went oh right and she just showed me pictures of these outfits that were just incredible um for, for the for, for the youngsters in it and there was I, and I genuinely thought, Jesus, I feel I'm 150. And I thought, all right, on this job, I'm going to turn up on, on day one and I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to sit in the corner. I'm just going to do my job. And then I'm just going to take a step back. And then I'm going to just let them do their brilliance and let them shine. And I'm just going to do my job and I'll disappear. And thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and I remember arriving on day one, feeling 150. Uh, and the first day I had to do was to address the entire school with all these, you know, characters dotted in amongst all the the, the brilliant essays that we've got. And uh, yeah, they were just so lovely to me. I felt like the newcomer. I really did. I just felt so isolated for about a second. And then the green room, of course, while we were filming in Panar for this sort of three-day stretch where I deliver all these school um, uh, sort of eulogies on the, on the, in the school assemblies. Um, was just like a, it was like a party with endless cups of tea and care. It just the noise was extraordinary, um, just full of joy. And so I, uh, I, I love this show. I love it. I absolutely, I love what it speaks to. I love making it, um, and I love the personnel involved. It is, uh, it's something again that's very, very special. And then when it reaches out into the world and touches so many people that it has done of all ages then um, again, you just go, Jesus, how lucky am I yet again to have another kind of alchemic experience working on a, on a show. But I, I, I love this show. I really, really do. I wanted to talk to you about this kind of, this youthful cast that has come in and is, as you say, absolutely leading it. And then, and how that feels for you kind of fitting in. But it seems like you've, you're part, part of the ship, part of the crew. Folded in. Uh, I mean, so folded in. Um, is there know, a lot the of banter? Age- there's there's loads. I mean, there's there's tons. I mean, I'm I'm very very close to Connor Swindells, who plays my son. Um, we're we're very close, um, and uh, I I I adore him. I think he's a, I think he's a supreme talent. To have the instinctive ability to turn up on a on a show um, and do so little 
and be and nail it is it's i mean my jaws on the floor in fact it's entirely thanks to connor i'm in this show they cast i think connor was one of if not the first person who was cast in this in in the show they saw obviously tons can you imagine how many young actors they would have seen for this show alice i I auditioned for that role man did you yeah did you you know what though because i remember when i watched it for the first time and obviously he's in the opening scene right yeah and i was watching it i was just like first of all I couldn't have done that. And then I finished the first series and I was just like, do you know what? Thank fuck I didn't get the role. <laughs> I cannot do that. He nailed it. It's so interesting. You see, but you see, you know, to your point, it's interesting. It's just that, and so it, that's about, you know, how they get the alchemy of the cast together and all the rest of it. But they cast Connor and, uh, and then um, Jamie Campbell, my agent phone and said, oh, I've got this script. It's called Sex Education. He says, it's really good. He said, anyway, Jamie Campbell is um, the exec on it. And I know Jamie... And uh, I was in a show at the time on TV and we were having a big old do. I was doing a thing with Mark Strong and, and she said, listen, I'm going to bring Jamie along to watch that we did a sort of a flashy two episode show at the Curzon. So I'm going to bring Jamie along because it'd be great to see him to see you on this thing and we'll have a nice evening. Anyway, I met Jamie that night and I was going in to meet them, I think the next day or the day after. Anyway, Jamie was charming and delightful. And, um, and uh, so I went in to meet Ben, our produ- uh, director and exec producer, JJ, our producer, um, and I think Lauren, who was casting it. Anyway, I walked into the room and they were just so lovely. They were all saying, it's lovely to meet you. I was like, lovely to meet you. We chatted <laughs> and we had a, and it's just like, we were all over each other. I love the show. We were like, we love you. And it's like, great. And I walked out going, Jesus, that was just the nicest half hour of my life. Anyway, cut to about an hour later, I got offered a job. And I was like, shit, this, is, this doesn't normally happen with this kind of rapidity. <laughs> and Netflix have cleared you, and that's all good. Uh, and then basically, the reason, not the reason, one of the brilliant reasons was that Connor had been cast. And because we looked so similar, I'd walked into the room, and they'd gone, we knew it. I mean, in their heads, they were going, we knew it. I mean, Jesus. I think they literally held up, before my meeting, they'd held up a picture of Connor and a picture of me and gone, I mean, come on. And, you know, hey, I'll take however I get it, I'll take it. Uh, and so, and it's still to this day, we get loads of love on, uh, loads of stuff online. People just saying, are you, I mean, are you, are you his dad? <laughs> and uh, I just go, maybe. Um, so, and I love that. And we built a really, really lovely bond. Um, but what, the other thing I love about watching, I just sort of sit in my comfy chair and I just watch the rise um, of this this cast um, and the opportunities that are now coming their way due to just really good work that they do. Um, and I just, it gives me endless pleasure. It really does. I mean, Connor's at the moment filming this thing about the SAS. He's number one on the call sheet. Um, obviously Emma's doing brilliantly. Um, you know, Shooty is just celebrated. I mean, so many of them, Amy Lou Wood again, is like a daughter to me. I, I, you know, they're all of them. You're just watching really wonderfully talented people now get opportunities and uh, for which they are all again there's a there's a there's a gratitude and a humbleness to to all of this and i think um and i think challenges come with it as well i think the attention was was pretty startling for them and is startling you know when you suddenly go from 200 followers on instagram to 5 million that's a pretty good snapshot of where your kind of life is at physical and mental well-being are so important and come hand in hand I'm incredibly proud to be sponsored by the CBD brand, The Good Level, who have well-being at the very forefront of what they do as a company and a brand. 
They offer CBD oils, balms and jellies, all of which are full spectrum and extracted by a cold press. Their oils are all made with extra virgin olive oil from Kalamata and that makes them so much tastier than any other that I've tried before. Their balms have a fantastic smell as well and are great to use on your skin or any pain you're experiencing. And of course their jellies taste so great for any sweet tooths. They also have a commitment to sustainability, pledging to plant at least 500 trees every year along with ensuring all their packaging is recyclable. So if you want to check The Good Level out, go to their Instagram page at the.good.level where you can find out all about their products. And if you'd like a discount, feel free to use Headstrong15 at checkout on their website. As you say, it's an immense platform that it was projected onto. And I actually remember speaking to Acer before it was coming out. And mm. they, they were on, I think, doing a press release with Emma. And I mm. remember like him telling me who Emma was. And I looked and she only had like 5,000 followers. And I yeah. was just like, oh, this would be cool. I, it'd be quite nice if, uh, you know, Acer could introduce me for the podcast, whatever. And then mm. like, I checked like two weeks later. And she was like, I was like, did I, did I miss something? And I was yeah. like, no, I didn't because I watched the show. So I, and it, the reach was immense. And I think it yeah. goes to show the, the narrative uh, of the show and what it kind of captures. Hadn't really been done before to the capacity that it brings. Um, and it kind of brings a unique kind of story and group of people together that's reflective of true popular culture. Mm. It, it, I think it's, I mean, if you break it down, it's, it's a very simple idea you know, let's examine the lives and loves of young people um, in a school environment. Um, You know, that's been done before. Um, But it's, I think the script had been around for a little while. Um, Mm. I think this is right. And I think it was just trying to find its tone, um, which is, you know, when you're in production, there's constant, just going, what's the tone of it? What's the tone of it? Um, On anything you're working on, if you're in sort of the early stages of it, in the sort of, sort of, building you know the writing process or something what's its tone what's its tone um and i think when the current team sort of got together when ben got involved and read it i think he said i think i know what this is and obviously the homage to the 80s films you know the john hughes films became um, a good kind of reference point and then i think it, it found its tone but i think originally it it was it wanted to come from a place of real warmth um, and not cynicism. Um, mm. And that was a kind of a founding tenet of this, of this show. Um, and it was determined to be, you know, diverse and inclusive and um, not front heavy footed issue based, but, you know, inevitably growing up, there are all of these, you know, things to, 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 to examine and discuss. But I think that, I mean, the, the, the maddest sort of person, I had this guy, I was walking down Garrick Street in London, and this guy, he must have been 80 plus. I mean, literally, he came charging out of, of a restaurant on Garrick Street with a, with a napkin in his, um, you know, st- proper old school stuffed in his shirt. And he came up to me mid-dinner, I guess, and he just went, young man. That took me aback. I was like, thank you very much. So, young mate, that show is the most wonderful. Anyway, he can't, I was like, thank, thank you so much. Because, I mean, I've, I've said it a lot, but I do believe it's that, that you know, if you're 15, 16, 17 and you watch the show, it will speak to you. 
But, you know, if you're 80, you were 17, 16, 15, 16, 17 once, and you remember all of those things. So thematically universal um, about how you felt about growing up and how you felt about sex and how you felt about love and how you felt about your parents and how you just felt or, or, or tried to feel. And it speaks to all of those things. And it's, um, yeah, there's magic in, there's magic in this show. Um, there really is. No, you've really captured it there. Now, as much as I could sit here for hours talking about every single credit uh, that you have done, I really, really, really could because I love it. I love hearing about everyone's experiences and unique experiences on on jobs. But Mm. I'm really pleased to have got you on Headstrong because Mm. you you have a wonderful and unique story yourself outside of of work. You're indeed a patron and ambassador for Born, which is a charity that researches to prevent premature birth. Correct. And I... If you're happy and comfortable to do so, I was wondering if you might be able to kind of um, just kind of retell your, your, your narrative, yours and Lucy's narrative and experiences, just to kind of give it some context before we talk about it. Yeah, of course. Um, well, Lucy and I were, when we got together, we were very keen to have children. We were both come from a place of, um, we were, you know, we wanted to have children um, together um, and we, so our eldest son was born. He was a couple of weeks premature. Um, but which is not, not unusual at all. Um, and then I think Lucy had quite a few miscarriages and so forth and had an ectopic pregnancy, um, which it's, you know, in this inverted commas, public domain, because I spoke about it, um, to do with the thing for the charity. Um, and so, you know, we, we said to ourselves, well, if we're lucky enough to have, you know, we have a son and, uh, we're lucky to have a son, um and if we can't have any more children then then you know we've done pretty well where other people um won't have succeeded so that's pretty good anyway lucy got pregnant again and we thought okay well fingers crossed here we go um and she was pregnant with twins which we just took as a sign from i don't know whatever you believe in and i'm not a religious man but um i sort of looked left right upwards downwards and just said a quiet thank you because it felt like something someone somewhere had said okay um, you two are doing pretty, pretty okay. And, um, maybe you can offer a, a little bit of love. I did have a sort of a vaguely spiritual sort of sense about it. Anyway, they were born, um, uh, yeah, nine, nine and a half weeks, so nearly 10 weeks early. Um, we were told if they got to 28 weeks, um, if the pregnancy got to 28 weeks, there was a very good chance of survival. So we thought, well, okay, when we got to 30 weeks, we thought, okay, we're in quite good shape. Now we can have the courage to go to um, to sort of, you know, mother care with a credit card and just start having a bit of a laugh and buying the fun stuff and enjoying it. Because uh, up to that point, it wasn't enjoyable because, you know, it was a, it was it was touch and go. Uh, and then literally the next day, um, Lucy went into labour. And so, yeah, kind of very long story short, um, where she was supposed to end up having the uh, the boys, the hospital had no incubators available. And... So I said, well, what happens? Um, then they said, well, we can slow the pregnancy down, hopefully by about 48 hours, by giving her this specific drug. And if we give her that drug, what that drug does is it slows the pregnancy down. And that drug also allows um, a sort of an artificial growth um, for the boy's lungs. And that was the biggest concern is lung growth. And he said, for every hour, um, we can slow down the, pre- uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the labor that gives us another, almost a day and a half, two days, something like that. I forget, 
but of kind of lung growth. And that will be key to their survival. So, okay. And I said, well, what happens to the babies? And they said, well, we have no incubators on site and they're going to need incubators. There's a rolling emergency list that we have on the computer. We'll look down that list. And then once we can see available beds, that's when we will book them and all good. It didn't occur to me that um, that list obviously pops up individual beds it doesn't individual incubators it doesn't you know two three four so at one point it was we've got two beds uh, two incubators reserved i went fantastic where are they and they said one's in birmingham and i said one's in birmingham yeah and the other was in uh, a hospital in essex i said right how does how does that work and they said well one of the boys will be sent by ambulance to the hospital in essex and one will be sent to the one in birmingham i thought this is insane how does that um i was racking my brains desperately trying to think of and they said we'll keep checking the list and obviously we don't want to spit them up if we don't have to and they kept checking this list and while they were doing that i said um is there anything at chelsea and westminster um not that it was our local hospital it's just that i had a friend who was a surgeon there he wasn't involved in <clears throat> as a craniofacial surgeon um um and so uh, they said, no, there's nothing at Chelsea and Westminster. So I picked up the phone and phoned my friend Martin and said, Martin, this has happened. Is, is there anything that you can do? And he said, I will, I will make a call, but there is nothing at my fingertips because it's just not my department, but, but I'll do my best. Um, he phoned me about five minutes later and said, oh, there's nothing I can do. Literally, there's nothing available. And then two minutes after that, someone barked from the, um, the office just along from the potential delivery suite and said, oh, two have come up at Chelsea and Westminster. I mean, just phenomenal. A couple of kids had been, you know, had been discharged. And so we were like, book them. So amazingly, they were transferred by ambulance to the Chelsea and Westminster. Um, so, you know, the trauma had already begun, really. And one of them, one of my sons got a, um, a lung disease. And I had to ask a very difficult question of the consultant. I had to say, you know, will my son die? And they said, we don't know. Um, and he was taken to, um, to, have a, to have a biopsy on his lung. And they were being injected a lot with a lot of needles and so forth. And it was, um, it was all very traumatic, because especially that they were, Jesus, they were like, you know, four days old. Um, and they were going to open him up and do a biopsy on the lungs to try and figure out what the problem was because um, his oxygen requirements were going up and down, up and down, up and down. His twin brother was starting, was, was in quite good nick, still on um, oxygen and CPAP, but but he was progressing. But this, the little, his, his brother was just struggling like hell. And uh, they said to us um, that we will either, you'll either, the, the options were he's either going to die uh, they didn't put it quite this bluntly, but he was either going to die. Best case scenario, um, you'd be able to take him home, but he would be on steroids um, and probably an oxygen tank, which he'd have to carry around with him for between possibly six and 10 years. And I said, OK, if we can avoid the steroids, because I knew that the damage that that would do to his body, if we can avoid steroids, um, I will snatch your hand off if it's just the oxygen tank. And they went, OK, we'll, we'll file that and we'll get back to you. Anyway, astoundingly, um, whatever this condition was, um, it was a pulmonary condition, somehow it burnt itself out. Um, and he didn't need an oxygen tank. Um, I mean, it showed the little blighted, had some considerable strength within him. So we eventually ended up taking him home. Um, no oxygen tank required, but it was so startling. And, and I think the thing is about it is that we didn't realize um, until I started talking um, to the great Professor Mark about 
the charity, um, and he's big in the neonatal unit at Chelsea and Westminster, about how what the prematurity, we don't know why it happens. Um, there's not a lot of research that goes into it, particularly, but it affects tens of millions of children worldwide. Um, it's the biggest cause of um, prematurity, the biggest cause of disability, um, and so much of it is preventable. So they're doing remarkable work, Born. They've got a really good plan. They're, they're um, you know, they, they don't, it's not a sort of a rolling year by year charity. They're really smart people, um, led by some fantastic, um, fantastic brains. But to try and, you know, if we can stop prematurity, then it would make, it would just cause just less death, less disability, less trauma. Um, and the sort of the button I'm trying to push with it, um, quietly really is to, is the money that the NHS would say. They spend hundreds of millions of pounds a year on prematurity. And if we can try and get some research money from, from government, then it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, put that, that money can be put elsewhere. So we went through something pretty extraordinary, um, and they're both fine now. Um, they're tall, lanky, and all the rest of it, um, and healthy, more importantly. Um, but prematurity is, um, yeah, if we can find a way to fix that, then... And not only, you know, in the UK, but worldwide, it's a worldwide endeavor because um, it can be done. It can be done. I really, really appreciate you retelling that story. And not I, I can only imagine, well, I, I, do you know what? I can't even fathom and comprehend the experiences that you, you have gone through with your wife, particularly because notably I'm not a father yet. Um, mm. But what this, this podcast is rooted in mental health. Mm. And I wanted to... I mean, it'll be so very difficult to kind of probably even capture it in words because words mm. won't be able to do it justice. But did you have a support network around you? What, were your, what was your strategy to kind of actually be able to get your head around what was going on at the time? Because you are very much rooted in reality and you're very much in the present and it is touch and go, but you have to remain sane. How did you manage to do that? It's a, it's, I thought about it a lot, really. Um, you learn an awful lot. My godson actually was, um, was diagnosed again, fine now, but when he was, he was eight, um, was diagnosed with, um, with leukemia. And I mention it because there's a sort of a parallel that I sort of discovered that I go into a very, not cold, but a sort of a numb crisis mode, um, which is right. What can we do to uh, not necessarily fix it? But how do we mitigate? What can what can we what can I do as an individual to navigate this problem? How can I help that situation? So, with my godson, it was like right. We need a shield. We don't need people phoning you up. They can phone me. Up. And so, you know, it goes. It get, I got very. And I, I've never forgotten about my, with my sons asking the question. You know, I had to ask a difficult question. I thought, right, I need to shield. Lucy's got enough going on. She's um, uh, going to be refereeing the boys and sort of attempting to breastfeed and all of those things with them. So I'm going to leave that there and I'm going to shield her from the difficult. So I'll ask the difficult questions and get the answers. And I remember never forget sitting in a room and asking that question, will my son die? And they said, it's possible. I went, right. Okay. I felt like I didn't have time to, um, emotionally fall um, or waver or so. I said, that's going to help no one. Um, so 
we'll get to that. We'll park that side of it for the moment. Let's just deal with what's in front of us and then we'll deal with the individual personal fallout later. I am not the most important person in this situation. I'm just not. They are. Everyone else is. So that was kind of, in those two instances with my godson and, and the boys, that became, you know, I've reflected on it from time to time. It doesn't make me superhuman um, or emotionally stunted or whatever you want to call it, but um, it was, I think, effective. And then, of course, you think, well, then what's what's the what's the aftermath of that? I mean, some people have said who've been through some form of trauma, you know, losing a parent or whatever it is. They said, oh, what generally happens is, is that six months from now, you'll be standing in your kitchen making a cup of tea and you'll fall into a heap on the floor. Um, and, you know, it'll all come out. Um, and did it? I think it probably did to a certain extent. Um you know, I'd like to think I'm pretty emotionally um, engaged with with the world and myself. Um, but I know I am. But, yeah, sort of two sides of an interesting brain, which is I can get very, um, yeah, good to give me a crisis and I, I can navigate it. But I can park the emotional side for when I need to. And then I can feel like, you know, I'll address it later when I've got the time to do it. Um, when everyone's okay it doesn't mean that i sit there and self-reflect um on it but i don't know it's just it's interesting it's a really interesting point and i certainly don't have any answers to it but i'm I'm sort of more curious about it than than, than anything as well no absolutely it's really interesting to to, to hear firsthand how, how it is processed and indeed how it's mm. not processed as well in in when you're experiencing it because you know mm. you almost don't want to process it i i anticipate to say um and then as you say i mean to a certain degree later down the line those experiences come out of you and you do do kind of let it out but mm. i mean i i'm i'm immensely happy for you i mean that everything's going so well but the the thing that i do want to talk about is the amazing work that you do do for born quite literally with your own physical body um from <laughs> from from the cycling to the swimming to the marathons i mean yeah unbelievable and well, it's yeah. It's, it's being married to someone that is um, is is so brilliantly kind of. Um, uh, my wife is the kind of individual that can't stop consuming and learning, and uh, and it's really inspiring to be married to because uh, I mean, I kid, like I kid you not, I got back from work yesterday and I said, "How was your day?" And she said, "Well, I did." She said, "I did this." I, she said, "I went to Brighton to swim." I went, "Oh God, I thought you left early." I said, "Yeah," and I went Brighton to swim, and I she said, "I went oh Brighton to swim," and I said, "What?" I said, are you, and I kid you not, this is my question. I said, are you, are you swimming the channel in a relay this year? And she went, yeah, with Lou. I went, all right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'd think I, 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 I did know that, but I think because it's the kind of thing that my brilliant wife does all the time. And then she said, and then she said, oh, I got back from Brighton and I almost missed my first ballet class. I was like, um, and I can't tell you how amazing that is to be to, to be married to someone like that. I, I just, you know, wow! If you can find a partner just with this kind of life consumption instinct, is it's just glorious. So um, I just kind of run along behind, going, "Okay, I'll do that." Um, how inspiring! Yeah, very inspiring. So um, we wanted to, I think, after the boys, we um, it was the neonatal unit primarily that we were raising. That this kind of series of fundraising that we did um, was to raise money for the neonatal unit. And we said after we sort of we were so grateful for the astounding help that the NHS gave us. Um, 
the uh, we just said what you know what do you need we'd like to raise some money what do you need and they actually said you know oh, do you know what we'd love we went what and they said we'd love a rocking chair is it a rocking chair I said yeah it really helps for breast for mother, new mother's breastfeeding because it's quite it rocks the baby and they can breastfeed and, and it just relaxes both the baby and mum I went rocking chair totally fine what else like what and we sort of pointed at an incubator which had been such a defining part of our, our lives or the boys lives i said what what about that and they went well um, that i said well how much is one of those and they said well to switch it on and have it running is about twenty five thousand quid and we went okay and then that's what we'll do then we had to figure out what it would be um what what we sort of needed to do to raise 25 grand and so yeah we took on these physical nonsense challenges um uh, and yeah, we, we, you know, very, very happily. And thanks to many, many people, um, we, uh, we raise, raise the money. That's amazing. Do you have any, any future endeavors? Well, <laughs> in, that, in that capacity and oh. same breath, so, you know, yeah, this sort of, well, I did one, which was fun. We did one for Bourne, which, um, Rupert Graves and I, um, I got, I got Rupert Graves thrown in a pool. <laughs> in uh, in Los Angeles um, at, a, at a Sherlock convention that I couldn't go to, but Rupert was there and they filmed it and it was lovely. And so people basically put in, we raised, you know, a little bit of money for that. And then um, Laura came over to the UK and um, uh, Rupert got his revenge by hurling me in, in, in a pool in Hampstead in January, which again exists somewhere on social media. So um, um, yeah, there's all sorts of little things that we'd, we'd like to do. It's just... I think talking about it, it's as ever, people would say, you know, raising awareness is really, really key. But um, yeah, my wife's swimming the channel this year, as you do. Um, and uh, yeah, there's always some, there's always some scheme. <laughs> there's always some scheme, you know, what can we do to help? Um, yeah, we'll see. Post-pandemic, you know, I don't know. But yeah, there'll be something I'm sure there always is in the ether. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. And it's really fantastic. I mean, it, it, what, when I'm about to ask the next question, it makes what the answer will be completely insignificant to all of that <laughs> and what the charity is. But it's what, what is coming next in the future in terms of your, your, your work? Because we've got the film production company set up now, I believe. You've just yeah, wrapped season three of Sex Ed. Yeah, we're a, we're a fledgling outfit, um, but we've, um, we've, been, uh, we've got a brilliant development um, on a project. In fact, one of, one of our, the first project that we've been working on for a very long time um, uh, and these things do unfortunately take time, um, despite the changing atmosphere of, of television consumption and how much is being made. Um, uh, that's just been pitched to all the networks in the US, which is hugely exciting. We've got some amazing partners, so we're waiting to see where, where which home it will will find its place. And it's a massively ambitious um, story, as she said, in the Middle East. So that's very exciting, which doesn't involve terrorism. Um, um, and uh, we've just started a development deal with. Um, uh, with uh, a company that I've worked with before. And I, I, I just have to be careful about what I say about these things. Of course. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, and I love that, you know, building something from the ground up. That's really exciting. Um, so, yeah, there's tons going on there, which is great. And it's, you know, it's it takes time and there's a grinding aspect to it, but that's fun. Uh, yeah, see, seasons of, season three of Sex Ed, we've wrapped. Um, and uh, yeah, I start on Monday on something else, which uh, again, the glorious world of NDAs. Um, but it's with, uh, but I'm collaborating with someone who I have worked with before, um, who may or may not have um, been named in this podcast, um, and uh, which is really exciting. And I think it'll be out there soon enough. But um, I, I, it's, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, that should be really, really fun. Um, so that's on Monday. And uh, yeah, there's, and I'm, I'm sort of quietly trying to build a directing career as well. 
Oh, I say a directing career, that makes it sound a lot more glamorous than it really is. Um, but um, yeah, I've directed a short, which um, was written by Dave Kajganik, who wrote The Terror, who um, I work with and just, just I think his work is so fantastic. And he wrote it and we shot it and we've done it anyway. And it's now starting the festival circuit, which is quite fun. So um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I think the headline through all of that is um, I, I feel an inordinate privilege and, and lucky to do what I do. I feel inordinately privileged to get to do what I do in the sense that, you know, we all know, and you know as well, it's a really hyper-competitive business. And despite the fact that everyone assumes that because there's so much telly out there to watch, um, you know, everyone is working all of the time and that's just not the case. Um, it's still, um, you know, it's still a challenge. It's still an industry built on on, um, on rejection. That's the nature of it. But so when I get to do what I do, I feel very, very grateful for it. Um, and, um, you know, because I get to do it with my tribe and that is... Um, you know, that's, that's very special. And I just refuse to be cynical about it. Um, I just won't as ever. I, the point where I feel cynical and slightly bitter is the time I'll probably, you know, step back, but I just don't feel, don't feel that. Um, it's, uh, it all sounds terribly easy, but it, but it isn't, you know, um, as ever hard work is no substitute for anything else. Absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, of course it does absolutely now i ask this question to every guest that comes onto the show yeah. and i'm now very intrigued as to what you may say uh having her having having spoken to you for the hour what does the word headstrong mean to you do you know it's it's interesting that when i when i heard the word headstrong uh in connection to to the podcast and the word generally the thing i didn't think of which is the most sort of route one which is stubborn blah 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 that version of 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 headstrong it didn't come into my brain um uh headstrong i i it, it felt very much split into two words um you know the strength you're feeling at any given time in your head um so it's it's a fairly kind of rambly answer to your question but but i was intrigued after i reflected on that i thought god i really didn't think of the you know stubborn know your own know your own mind headstrong i thought headstrong strength in your head how you're feeling in your head um and the flip side of that coin means can you be head weak um and and so it felt that headstrong is is a temporary word and I think headstrong is feeling strength in your head doesn't necessarily mean that if you're not feeling strong in your head, it means you have to be feeling weak in your head um, because weak is a terrible word um, physically and mentally and it shouldn't be used. Um, I, it, it doesn't help anyone, least of all the person who isn't feeling at their strongest. It doesn't mean that they're feeling weak. Um, it's a dreadful word to use. So it's, it's a very sort of semi-bullshit philosophical answer really but it, it made me think if you're feeling strong in your head it's not so much about how you it's about how you're feeling and if you're feeling strong i'd say you know i'd say sort of head confident in a way um and there are other times when you're feeling head less confident when you may require more help um and all of those things so um it, it it's it's a very it feels like headstrong is a, is a is a temporary word that's an ever-shifting entity that um that we should all if we can be mindful of not only ourselves but definitely of other people um and if we can drop kick the word weak into um into um into the dustbin i think that would be a probably quite a healthy thing as well so it's a fairly rambling non-thought through philosophical answer but i didn't think of headstrong as in yes yeah, stubborn and yes forthright it just didn't occur to me and i thought that in itself was the fact that it didn't um 
it didn't occur to me was sort of interesting. So I'm still reflecting on the answer. So I've given you half an answer, but it's at least, <laughs> it's at least something. <laughs> when we next connect, I'll ask you again. I'll go, Louis, I've got it. I've got it. In one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for uh, spending the time with me this morning. I've really enjoyed it. It's been very insightful and you've been very, very, very open and honest, which I'm hugely appreciative of. So thank, thank you, you very much for coming on to Headstrong. Uh, I wish you all the best uh, and to your wife on her endeavours and your yeah. family. Yeah. Well, uh, how exciting. What, what, are you, what, a, what a summer ahead by the sounds of things. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, and um, yeah, and big love to everyone else who's um, figuring stuff out. So, um, but thank you so much for having me, Louis. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to have teamed up with The Good Level, a British CBD company who share a similar ethos to that of Headstrong. The Good Level co-founders, Joe and Johnny, believe in CBD as it's helped them and their families with their physical and mental well-being. Whether that's using their balms to recover from physical exercise or using their oils to manage stress and anxiety or to get a better night's sleep. The Good Level has well-being at the very centre of their brand. As we've partnered up with them for this season, you can get a 15% discount off all their orders using Headstrong15 at checkout. And if you're not sure about CBD yet, no worries. Joe and Johnny are always happy to chat and answer all your questions. You can contact them via their website or check out their Instagram at the.good.level. And that's Headstrong15 at checkout. Thank you so very much to Mr. Alistair Petrie for joining me on Headstrong. It was a really great conversation to have and he was so very generous with his time with me. I really hope that anyone who has a spare quid, fiver, tenner, 20 pounds, please go support the charity Born. The work that they are doing is absolutely fantastic and I know that every pound helps these kind of charities, particularly after the challenging 18 months that we have all had. Thank you again to you, the listener, for tuning in to the podcast. If you haven't yet already, please do hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. It really helps me and the podcast to continue to grow and get these conversations out there to more people. Until next Monday, though, thank you so much again for listening in and stay headstrong. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 